I'm Dave, for anyone who doesn't know me, it's a real pleasure to see you all here this morning. Uh, it struck me that the great Arnold Schwarzenegger has some of the greatest one-liners in movie history. Get to the chopper! Let off some steam! A personal favourite of mine. Do it! Do it now! <laughs> but of course, all these pale in comparison to his greatest line of all. I'll be back. Now, if you're now thinking, Dave, I think lockdown has got you ahead a little bit, you'd be partly right. I have been in this room a little bit too much recently, but there is a point to those quotes. Without realising it, I think Arnie has actually wonderfully summarised the key uh, message of Matthew 25 and arguably a key message of the whole of the New Testament. It's all about Jesus coming back. That's what Matthew 25 is all about, the return of Jesus. Chapter, the chapter contains three parables that are all about Christ's return. The first is about 10 young women waiting to be escorted to a wedding banquet. Now, in those days, wedding banquets would be spread over several locations. The groom and his friends would all get together and leave their place and travel to the bride's house, picking up wedding guests along the way. So these young women are waiting to be escorted to the banquet. Now, the women's wait is at night, so they each have an oil filled lamp, but only five of them out of the ten had the foresight to bring extra oil. So that means that the five who didn't have extra end up running out of oil. Because of that, they miss the arrival of the bridegroom because they're off buying more oil for their lamps which means they don't get to go to the banquet. They try and turn up later, but they hear a phrase from the master of the banquet, which none of us ever want to hear. He says, truly, I tell you, I never knew you. That's in verse 12. Jesus then tells us the point of this parable in verse 13. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour of Christ's return. Now, the last parable in this chapter is of the sheep and the goats. In verse 31, Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. It's then crunch time. Now, mankind has always been preoccupied with putting ourselves into different groups based on anything and everything. Our nationality, I suspect for some people, whether they're English or Welsh today, will make a bigger difference than normal. Our gender, our social class, our political affiliations, even which sports team we support. Now, my wife doesn't even like football, but if you say to the girl who grew up in Tottenham, the best club in North London wear red, then you will quickly find out you can take the girl out of Tottenham, but you cannot take Tottenham out of the girl. The point is that when Jesus returns, there is only one distinction that's going to matter. Are you trusting in him as your only way of salvation or are you not? When Jesus returns, this is the only distinction that is going to matter. The whole world split into two groups, those who are for and those who are against God. There is no middle ground. The parable goes on to show that what we believe will affect what we do. Because trusting in Jesus, having faith in him will affect what we do. Now, sandwiched between these two parables is the one which Celia's read for us uh, this morning. It's the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold in some translations. 
This parable is again about the return of Christ, but this time with a slightly different emphasis. We've seen already that how we respond to Jesus returning is the most important distinction about us. We've also seen that we don't know when he's coming back, so we should keep watch. But I guess the question is, what does that actually mean? What should we be doing whilst we're waiting for him to return? Well, as we look at this parable more closely and try to answer these questions, I've got three points for you. So firstly, invest what we've been given. Secondly, we need to know the master. And thirdly, it's all about joy. So let's jump into point one. Verse 14, it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted wealth to them. The scene here is set. A wealthy man is going off on a long journey, which presumably will have him going out of town for a little while. So he decides to entrust his wealth with his servants. And we're not talking about a few quid. Read on in verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now we can approach this parable with a bit of a, that's not fair, he got more than me type attitude. But actually that comes from a failure to see that each of them got an awful lot. Now, in the days of Jesus, a talent was a designation of money. And there's some debate over exactly how much it was, but most agree it was roughly equivalent to a labourer earning 20 years worth of wages. So if we would put that in today's money, if we would say conservatively, and mainly because I can't do maths unless it's big numbers, a labourer might earn £20,000 a year, so times that by 20, now, you'll have to check this with Bertie afterwards, but by my maths, that's £400,000, and that's for one talent. No one got shortchanged in, in their handing out of these talents. Now, we see from verses 16 to 18 that the first two, the first two servants go out like a couple of king beans. They put his money to work, making some pretty big profit. But one of the servants decides a more low tech method and instead decides to bury his talent in a field. Now, in verse 19, after a long wait, the master returns and it says he settles accounts with them. This tells us something really important about what was given. It wasn't to keep. It was a long term loan. And there was an expectation that what was given would be invested. Now, it strikes me that the first servant must have been really excited. I can almost picture him in verse 20, walking up to the master, trying to hide that excitement. Maybe he's got those five talents in front of him and the other five tucked behind his back, trying to keep his cool. He says, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. He waits for a bit of a dramatic pause, reaches behind his back, pulls out the other one. See, I've gained five more. And look at the master's response. Talk about affirmation. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now, this scene is very closely repeated by the second servant, who again doubles what he has been given. And it's important to note that the response he gets from the master is word for word exactly the same as what was said to the first servant. It seems the master is not primarily concerned with the amount that is brought back to him, but the fact that 
People worked hard and went invested what was given and brought back a return. I'm sure that if the second servant did have any qualms about the fact he was given less initially, they were blown away at that point when he received exactly the same praise as the first man. But then we see the third servant coming up. Now, this might surprise you. It probably won't. I didn't always do my homework when I was at school. I can remember sitting in lessons, having not done my homework, waiting as the teacher went round people to go and check that it had been done. As I was sitting there, I'd hear lots of, oh, well done, Mark, lovely job. Oh, good girl, Stacey, that's a lovely bit of homework. Now, as the teacher's getting closer to me, my tie would be feeling tighter and tighter. The room would be feeling hotter. The walls would start to feel closing in. And all I'd be thinking was, what am I going to say? I'd be rehearsing the excuse that I'd been running over in my mind that day, and it was usually pretty weak. Well, let's look at verse 24 and see how the third servant fares compared to me. Master. Okay, well, that's a good start. He's been respectful. I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Oh, I mean, I've never been great at coming up with excuses, but I know that insulting the person who's there holding you to account is not a good idea. Can you imagine the first and the second servant looking at one another at that point? Not only has he turned up with nothing, he's even blaming that on the master. The third servant goes on to explain. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The master's response is the complete opposite of what the first two hear. You wicked, lazy servant. The talent is taken from him and he is thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does all this mean? Well, in one sense, it is pretty simple. Jesus is the master and he's coming back. And when he does, he's going to ask everybody, what have you done with the things I've given you? Have you invested them for me? So I guess the question for us is, what are the things Jesus has given us? What do the talents in this parable represent? And what does investing them actually look like? Now, there are a variety of answers to this question. And whilst the different suggestions are very interesting, I don't want to overcomplicate what I think is a very simple parable. I think that the parables represent the things that God generously gives us in life, not necessarily our natural attributes, because verse 15 says that they are given according to our attributes. But they could be almost anything that we get from our attributes. So what are some of the things we get from our natural attributes? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's free time. Maybe it's energy. Maybe it's health, family, friendship, success influence opportunity i mean the list is pretty much endless the thing is though because these have been given according to our ability we tend to think that we've earned them that they're ours however we must see like this parable shows is that they are a gift we are not their owner we've been entrusted with them whilst we're waiting for the true owner to return now, I've worked for some real micromanagers during my time. It's incredibly painful because it's not enough for them to tell you what to do. They want to tell you exactly how you should do it as well. This is certainly not an accusation you can make of the master. He leaves it up to the servants. 
Presumably, he was a wise investor and knew what would have made a good return, but he's not prescriptive. He gives them the choice. In the same way, he gives us freedom. He expects us to be able to look around us and ask, how can I use what I've been given to honour God? How can I use his gifts to reflect to the world that my master is coming back? Knowing that Jesus is coming back makes all the difference. It means when I look at my bank account, I see it differently. What's in it is a gift, a gift which is to be used to bring glory to God. It makes me look at my free time differently. It makes me ask, how am I using it as an investment? Am I investing in my relationship with Jesus? Am I investing time with other people and putting their needs before my own? Am I living like Jesus? Now, some of the gifts that God gives us don't feel like gifts. I know that I have moaned an awful lot about the struggle of homeschooling over lockdown. I'm not very good at it and I find it really hard. I generally don't see it as a gift. I see it as a chore and something to get through. But what if reflecting on Jesus's return, I broadened my understanding of what a gift is. I learned to look for the positive. God's given me time with my family to invest in my relationship with them, to show them how precious Jesus is and how much we all need him. Investing for him starts by changing how we see the world. And that also means that on the 8th of March, when my kids do start returning to school, I can see that as a gift as well. The gift of some headspace, the gift of not having to Google three times a day. What is an adverb? I still don't know what one is. But how am I going to use the extra free time, which is a gift from God? This parable is a call to look at the things that God has given us in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return and ask ourselves, what's the best thing we can do with those gifts? If I have free time, are there ways I can be sharing the hope of the gospel with those who don't know it? Can I be encouraging fellow believers? Can I be praying more? Can I be investing in my own relationship with Jesus by learning more about him? Now, I know that for many people, lockdown has meant that you've really had to tighten the purse strings. People have lost jobs. People have taken pay cuts and been put on furlough. But for a number of us, it's actually meant we've had slightly more money. Because, I mean, at the moment, you can't go out for coffee. You can't go to the pub. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go and see your friends. We can't go on holiday. We're barely using any petrol. The world says you've earned that extra money. It's been a difficult year. You treat yourself. The question we must ask is, will we listen to that voice or will we listen to the master who's coming back and going to ask us not were you right about your interpretation of end times, not give us a theological pop quiz. But what he will ask us is, what have you done with the good things that I have given you? Now, my second point this morning is that we need to know the master. You see, on face value, this parable is all about what we do. But actually, I want to suggest that what the servants do is an outworking of what they believe about the master. That's the key to this passage. What we think of the master dictates how we live. This comes through actually most clearly in the third servant. What does he think of the, of the master? 
Can you remember what he said in verse 24? I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now, at first glance, it looks like the master acknowledges this brutal evaluation of his character. In verse 26, we see the master's response. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. But look a little more closely. He's not acknowledging it. Look at the question mark. He's saying, so you think you know me? Well, even if I was like that, which I'm not, by the way, need I remind you, I've just generously given huge sums of money to my servants to invest. But even if I was like that, you still messed up. The text shows is that the unfaithful servant's actions are simply a reflection of a heart which has already set itself against the master. This servant doesn't represent a believer who didn't do enough good things to get into heaven. Instead, he is someone who doesn't know the master, because if he did, he would have invested for the master, not go and bury his treasure in a field. Now, we don't hear expressly what the first two servants thought of the master, but their actions speak volumes. Look at verse 16. The man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five talents more. He went off at once. Not because he had to earn the money or the trust from the master. He'd already been given it. It would appear he sees it as a privilege and he was excited to go and invest it for the master. Do you see that one servant saw the master as cruel and his life reflected this? The other saw him as gracious and kind and their lives reflected this. The parable shows us that our view of Jesus will shape how we live. Is your life shaped by the way you see Jesus? Do you see him as the source of all the good things you have in your life? As the one who gives you what you don't deserve and the one who's coming back to make all things right? Are you investing the good things he's given you for his glory? Now, make no mistake, this is really hard. The world tells us that what you have is yours, that you've earned it and that you have the right to do what you want with it. I often joke with them that one of the most dangerous programmes on television is not the one you'd expect it to be. It's not full of sex, it's not full of violence or drugs. It's full of houses, really nice houses. I mean, I love watching Grand Designs, but I have to remind myself in every single episode that life is not all about having a dream house. It's all about Jesus and the fact that he is going to return. I want to finish with one last observation about this story. And it's my third point. It's all about joy. Did you notice how low the bar is actually set by the master? In verse 27, we see that he'd have been happy if the servants went and took their talent and put it in the bank to earn some interest on it for when the master returned. So why didn't they? They could have done that and then just put their feet up. But they went out and they grafted. They both doubled what they were given. Why? Because it's all about joy. I mean, we've talked about some pretty difficult stuff this morning. Do we see the things that God has given us as ours or as his? Do we use them for the pursuit of our pleasure 
or do we invest them for him? Well, the big mistake we make when we ask this question is we think choosing one means we can't have the other. In actual fact, the two are wonderfully linked. Investing what you have for Jesus means doesn't mean reducing your desire for joy. It means increasing it. It means setting that joy upon something better. Not settling for a temporary happiness, but striving for an eternal, never-ending joy. If the first two servants had been motivated simply by a desire to avoid being thrown out like the first servant, then they'd have done the bare minimum. But they go above and beyond because they've set their eyes on a higher joy, on the master's joy. The triune God has existed for all eternity, the Father, Son and Spirit, perfectly loving and enjoying one another for all of time. And Jesus here is saying something unbelievable. I want you to come and share in that joy, a joy which has been secured not by what you do, but by my death on the cross for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you see there what motivated Jesus to make the ultimate sacrifice? Joy. He faced the cross for the joy set before him. The joy of knowing that through his death and resurrection, he is able to glorify his father by saving his people and sharing their joy with us, with me. Now, this isn't some glib temporary happiness. Read the gospel accounts of how torn up Jesus was in the final hours before his crucifixion. You'll see that joy runs deeper than a temporary emotion. Joy doesn't mean we have to be happy all the time. But it means that when we face something really hard, we can look past it to see the never ending perfect joy that waits for us with Jesus's return. If joy is what motivated Jesus, then I'm pretty confident in saying I think it's OK for us to be motivated by joy as well. Now, we don't earn our way into heaven by making wise investments. Instead, we make wise investments when we see Jesus as our gracious master who is coming back. When we see it was his work that secured us a place in heaven and that we are undeserving and yet we still get to share in his joy. When I struggle to invest the good things God has given me, the answer is not simply to try harder or to be more disciplined. Those things may well be important. But first and foremost, we're called to see how beautiful the master is. Jesus doesn't want us to be motivated by guilt or fear, but by joy. Isn't that good news? Our ultimate joy will be found in being with God forever. But something else has struck me this week. Just imagine for a second being in heaven and looking at someone and thinking to yourself, in God's goodness, he allowed me to play some small part in that person seeing how precious Jesus is. Now, don't get me wrong. It is God alone who saves. But in his goodness, he likes to involve people like you and me in his plans. And he involves us by giving us gifts 
and calling us to invest them for his kingdom. In that moment, the thought of investing those things for any other reason than for the return of Jesus will seem absolutely ridiculous. Now, there are a lot of good things in the world, but comparing to the sharing in the master's joy, they all pale in insignificance. My question for you this morning is, will you set your hope on a higher joy? Will you share the good things he's given you because Jesus is coming back? And how we respond to his return is the most important thing about us.